how far would you go to seek justice for a loved one? In 2014, Miriam Rodriguez's 20-year-old daughter Karen was kidnapped and murdered by cartel members. With no help from the authorities, she took matters into her own hands. Over the next few years, Miriam Rodriguez worked as a one-woman detective team, tracking down, hunting, and apprehending her daughter's killers. Miriam used disguises, changed her appearance, used fake names and IDs, impersonated political figures, all in the name of justice for her daughter. And by the end of her fearless pursuit, she had notorious cartel members quite literally running for the hills when she came for them. She was deemed the angel of justice, and that's exactly what she was. Miriam's heroic story proves how powerful a mother's love really is. Because for Miriam, there was no limit to how far she would go in the name of justice. Welcome back to Avery After Dark. As always, I am your host, Avery Ross. And hey, if you're enjoying Avery After Dark, leave a rating and a review on Apple Podcasts. It helps so much in growing the show, so thank you. And if you want all these episodes early and ad-free, join the Patreon. I'm linking that in the show notes, only $3 a month. That's it. Thank you to all my supportive Patreon members. You all know I like to get right into it. This is the case of Miriam Rodriguez. To set the scene, it was 2014 in San Fernando, Mexico, in the state of Tamaulipas. It's a city with booming agricultural, chemical, and oil industries. But in the past years, it's been ravaged by cartels and organized crime. To summarize it, I'll share the U.S. State Department's travel advisory of the area. Quote, Do not travel due to crime and kidnapping. Organized crime activity including gun battles, murder, armed robbery, carjacking, kidnapping, forced disappearances, extortion, is common along the northern border. Criminal groups target public and private passenger buses as well as private automobiles traveling, often taking passengers and demanding ransom payments. End quote. Innocent residents of this state have tragically dealt with this kind of violence for years. Kidnapping is so prevalent, there are actually forms of insurance that citizens can take out specifically for paying off gangs who have abducted their loved ones. San Fernando, a city of 60,000 residents, sits along a main route. Just outside the city are a cluster of highways, each leading to border crossing with the United States, so it's an ideal location for traffickers. Sadly, a majority of the community has either been a victim of cartel violence or known someone who has. Shootouts are common, many restaurants, shops, and outdoor areas sit deserted. Blocks of homes sit abandoned. In 2014, at the center of much of the violence were the Zetas. The Zetas were once an armed wing of the Gulf Cartel, but had been in a vicious war with one of their one-time bosses for years. The Zetas are regarded as one of the most brutal cartels in history. They, along with other cartels in Mexico, were known to abduct innocent civilians for ransom to finance their war. So they will abduct an individual, oftentimes in broad daylight, and then begin extorting their families and loved ones. In the end, sometimes they'll return the individual after families pay, but many times, they don't. And the victim faces a much more sinister fate. There is no regard at all for human life. The concern for safety in the area really grew when in 2010, feds discovered a mass gravesite of 72 Central American migrants at a ranch on the city's outskirts. This, at the time, was one of the most savage killings ever perpetrated by a cartel. And from there, the violence escalated. More attacks, more abductions. 
In the midst of all this was Miriam Rodriguez Martinez. In 2014, Miriam was in her 50s, living in San Fernando, and had a small cowboy apparel shop named Rodeo Boots. She had three children, one of them being a daughter, 20-year-old Karen. Karen worked alongside her mom and helped run Rodeo Boots, which in the midst of so many other establishments closing in the area due to crime, for Rodeo Boots to stay open to the public like it did, says a lot about Miriam and Karen and how they ran their business. Karen worked at the shop and was also in school at the time. So as you may guess, many residents witnessed the violence in San Fernando firsthand and made the choice to pack up and leave. But others said, no, we're staying. They had built lives for themselves there and didn't want to leave because of the sins of others. Miriam and almost all of her family chose to stay in San Fernando. Miriam was born and raised there. She had her business. She had reasons to stay. Miriam had also recently separated from her husband. So she was really just trying to support herself and her children. Notably, one person that did leave was Louis, Karen's brother. He had moved away from San Fernando to escape the danger and violence of the town, and for good reason. On January 23rd, Karen was driving when two trucks pulled up on either side of her, stopping and entrapping her completely. Armed men forced their way into her truck and drove off with Karen inside. From there, the kidnappers drove to the Rodriguez family home where Karen lived. Miriam also worked as a nanny in Texas and was away that day. They brought Karen inside, bound and gagged her, and left her lying on the living room floor. Then there was a knock at the door, an unexpected visitor. Her uncle's mechanic was outside, having no clue what was going on inside. This man was only there to work on the family's truck, but the kidnappers heard him continuing to knock, and they panicked. They opened the door, grabbed, and kidnapped him as well. Then they all fled the scene to an unknown location. In the days following Karen's abduction, Miriam's life was a blur of calls and threats to pay ransoms for Karen's return. In order to pay the first ransom the kidnappers demanded, Miriam and her family had to take out a loan from the bank that offered lines of credit for these types of situations. And Miriam and her family followed each instruction they were given down to the letter, knowing that if they did everything they were asked, Karen could be returned alive. The kidnappers ordered them to leave the ransom money at a certain location in town, then leave and pick up Karen at a nearby cemetery. This exchange gave the family hope. They believed that this would be the end of it. They would get Karen back. The day of the exchange, Karen's father dropped off a bag of cash near a local health clinic, per instruction, and immediately drove to the cemetery to pick up Karen. He sat and waited and waited. But this was all in vain. No one showed up. There was no sign of Karen. Their hopes were shattered. After this, during another threatening ransom call, Miriam asked to meet one of the cartel members at a local restaurant. And to her surprise, one showed up. A young man with a clean-shaven face and slender frame met her at a restaurant in town. Miriam pled with him, please return my daughter. This young man told Miriam that it wasn't his gang who kidnapped her. He didn't have Karen but offered to try and find her for $2,000. Miriam agreed and paid him. Notably during this meeting, this man had a walkie-talkie with him, and through the muffled static, Miriam made note of the conversation she could overhear. Most importantly, she heard someone call this man by a name, Sama. The two left the restaurant that day. Sama got $2,000 from Miriam and said that he would keep her in the loop as he tried to track down Karen. 
But after a week, Sama stopped answering her phone calls entirely. In the midst of all this, numerous other cartel members were calling Miriam and the family claiming that they had kidnapped Karen and demanded $500 for her return. The family didn't really believe anyone anymore, but paid them anyways. Day after day, after every payment was sent, Miriam had hope. Hope that this would be the exchange that would bring back her daughter safely. But when days, weeks passed by, and still no sign of Karen, the calls began to dwindle, and Miriam's hope was shifting into something else entirely. Disappearances and abductions completely dismantle the grieving process in every way possible. Families don't even get a smidge of basic closure. It's an excruciating, endless loop of hope and then disappointment. In the end, loved ones are left sitting with no answers. At this point, Miriam had moved in with her oldest daughter, Azalea, and one morning, she woke up a changed woman. The once hopeful mother walked downstairs and said that she knew Karen was never coming back and that she was most likely dead. Miriam said this in a matter-of-fact tone and vowed to her daughter that she would not rest until she took down each and every person responsible. Miriam would get justice. No matter how long it took, she would hunt them down until the day she died. Miriam's hope had shifted into a fierce, fearless determination, proving that a mother's love is one of the most powerful, innate forces on Earth. It was now clear, this was her new mission, and Miriam was going to stop at nothing to get justice for her daughter. After their daughter's kidnapping, Karen's father reportedly turned inward and became a, quote, shell of a person. His heart was broken, he was destroyed. But within Miriam, a fire began to burn. To track down this group of kidnappers, Miriam wanted to work with the police, the authorities. But this turned out to be disappointing, as sadly, many of the police, politicians, were in the pockets of the cartels themselves. And the other authorities who weren't were underpaid, overworked, and completely overwhelmed with cartel violence. So getting help from police in this investigation was going to be close to impossible. Miriam would have to take action herself. And she had a secret weapon, a witness to the kidnapping who she could consult with one-on-one. -on -one. And that was the mechanic who was kidnapped that day along with Karen. He was never the intended target and was released by Karen's abductors later that same day he was taken. So he was able to provide Miriam with information from that day and she took note of every last detail. What he saw that day, what he heard, he gave her a play-by-play, -play, describing the kidnappers to a T. He was also able to confirm something huge, something Miriam already believed to be true. That Sama, the young man she met at the restaurant, the one who denied involvement in Karen's abduction and took $2,000 to help find her, was involved. He was one of Karen's abductors. This was a major break in the case for Miriam. She had a name and a face of one of the perps. But how would she track him down? Where exactly does a one-woman detective squad start? Well, turns out the same place we all do, social media. Miriam became a bona fide social media sleuth. She spent hour after hour combing through Karen's Facebook profile, social media pages, looking into every post, every connection. She also knew that these cartel members were a prideful bunch. The infamous Zetas wouldn't hide themselves, wouldn't shy away from social media or aim to remain anonymous because they didn't need to. They could do whatever they want. Sama would eventually post something, a clue, and Miriam would be there to catch him when he did. 
And one morning, Miriam laid on her couch scrolling through Facebook when she came upon a photo. In this picture, she spotted a familiar face, Sama. She recognized him immediately from their meeting. The clean-shaven face, the slender build. In the photo standing beside him was a young woman wearing an ice cream shop uniform. The two seemed to be friendly. She researched the name on her uniform and linked it to an ice cream shop that was only two hours away. From there, Miriam had the address and began to stake out the ice cream shop. For weeks, she sat outside, memorized the woman's schedule, watching her every move. She waited outside every shift until Sama showed up. And finally, one day, he did. Miriam then tailed them, following their car back to their home, and made note of their address. So she had some intel, but Miriam needed more information to go to police with. She knew it was going to be a tough sell to get them to believe her and investigate Sama, so Miriam went undercover. Years prior, she worked as a health employee, so she pulled her old uniform out of storage, dyed her hair red, cut it, got a fake ID as a health official, and began canvassing Sama's neighborhood with a local poll. She knocked on every door with a smile, official paperwork in hand, all the while gaining intel on Sama and his household. What was his full name? Who was he? She needed to be thorough. Through her undercover work as a health official, she finally got the name of her target. Now, she felt she had enough. She contacted many authorities, and many blew her off. But one federal police officer with the cojones was so impressed with Miriam and her investigation that he eagerly and happily joined the case. This officer said, quote, When she pulled her files onto the table, I had never seen anything like it. The details and information gathered by this woman, working all alone, were incredible, end quote. This officer remains an active duty commander and asked not to be quoted by name because he had not been authorized to speak publicly. He continued on, saying, quote, She had gone to every single level of government and they had slammed the door in her face. To help her hunt down the people who took her daughter, it was the greatest privilege of my career, end quote. So finally, Miriam has found an ally in this investigation, and this federal police officer issued an arrest warrant for Sama. But he must have gotten wind of the warrant, and as it goes, Sama disappeared for a while. In the meantime, Miriam made good use of her days and went through his social media, finding other members of the group of kidnappers working for the cartel. Because remember, Miriam is taking them all down. And on September 15, 2014, Miriam got an unexpected call from her son, Louis. He was very well informed of his mom's investigation. And while at work at a hat store that day, he observed a young man, clean-shaven, slender build, come into the shop and browse for hats. He knew exactly who this was. It was Sama. Louis had the foresight to call police and alert his mother, Miriam. So what are the chances of this? The perp walking into the very store Miriam's son, Karen's brother, works at? And how amazing is this family working together? Just incredible. Sama is arrested and brought in for questioning. During the interrogation, Sama began dropping names and places tied to Karen's kidnapping. And from this information, police arrested another young man, referred to in the media as The Kid. He was 18-year-old Christian Gonzalez. During his interrogation, he was reportedly scared and demanding to see his mom, also whining that he was hungry. And here is something so shocking. Miriam was outside the interrogation room, and when she heard Christian complaining, 
she brought him fried chicken and a Coke. When the officers asked her, why would you do this for him? Miriam replied, he's still a child no matter what he did and I am still a mother. When I heard him just now, it was like my own child. So mind you, this individual assisted in the kidnapping and murder of her daughter. And she has the heart and compassion to treat him like a human being. Miriam, you leave me speechless. To have that kind of love in your heart, she just blows me away. When she brings him this food, it really softens him. And Christian flat out tells them everything they want to hear, offering to take them to the site of the murder and burial. The group then travels to an abandoned ranch in the middle of nowhere down a dirt path. This was a war zone. Bullet holes in every structure you laid eyes on. A place that has seen unthinkable violence. On this ranch, next to an old broken-down truck, was a pile of victims' belongings and bones. In this pile, Miriam saw something familiar. Karen's scarf and her truck seat cushion. The remains were tested, and at first, forensic team stated that Karen's remains were not found. But Miriam knew they were and demanded that they retest. After a year of pleading with the forensic team, it was confirmed. Of the remains found on that ranch, a part of Karen's femur bone was found. Miriam was able to place her daughter to rest. But for Miriam, her work was far from over. The same day as Miriam drove home from her daughter's burial site, she passed by a barbecue restaurant near the entrance of the dirt road to the ranch. She had been there before, two days after Karen was kidnapped. While there, she bumped into a young woman that Miriam had known for years, named Elvia Betancourt. She sat drinking a soda in the restaurant that day. Miriam had been kind to Elvia when she was younger. As a child, she was abandoned at a local brothel by her mother who worked as a prostitute. And when she was younger, Miriam had extended a helping hand to her, specifically giving her Karen's clothing, all in a sense of goodwill. We've seen what kind of compassionate person Miriam is, and this comes as no surprise that she helped Elvia out as a child. When Miriam saw her that day at the restaurant, she walked right up to her and asked her if she had seen or heard anything to do with Karen, telling her all about the kidnapping and how she was desperately searching for her daughter. Elvia reportedly played it off that she didn't know a thing, but Miriam could sense that she was lying about something, but dropped it that day. So during this drive home from that ranch, something clicked. Miriam thought of Elvia and how strange she acted that day, and it dawned on her that Elvia may have been watching the ranch, monitoring it, involved in all of this. Miriam was enraged. How, after everything she had done to help this woman, offered goodwill when she was in need, giving her Karen's clothing, and now she was lying to her. Miriam knew in her heart that Elvia knew more. She was somehow connected to Karen's disappearance in some way. Call it mother's intuition, but Miriam just knew. She went home, immediately hopped back onto social media, and made a disturbing realization. She saw that Elvia was in a relationship with one of Karen's kidnappers. This kidnapper was behind bars for another crime, but Miriam had her new target. This kind of betrayal was unforgivable. Miriam staked out the jail where this kidnapper was being held and waited for Elvia to come visit during the prison visiting hours. Again, spending weeks and weeks staking out the joint until one day Elvia showed up. Authorities were called and she was arrested. When police investigated further, 
they found out something even more sinister. Remember the numerous ransom calls that were made to extort Miriam and her family in those weeks following Karen's kidnapping? Some of those were made from Elvia's home. So not only did Elvia know what happened to Karen and lied to Miriam that day, she was also involved in extorting the family, making a profit off of their loss, all to a woman that did nothing but help her. Disgusting and just the most heartless of betrayals. From here, Miriam stayed on her mission, hunting down these kidnappers one by one. Over the next couple years, she found out that some were in prison, some were dead, but the ones that were still freely walking the streets were often hiding in plain sight. One worked as a taxi driver, another a born-again Christian, and another a gas delivery man, and she hunted and apprehended each and every one. She did this through her disguises, dyeing her hair different colors, different haircuts, disguising herself as different kinds of people and all types of positions, all to gain intel on her targets. She would make up excuses to run into and meet the kidnappers' families. Cousins, uncles, aunts, friends. When she would speak with them and they would provide her any information, no matter how small, Miriam would write it down and stuff it into her black satchel she took everywhere, which was filled to the brim with evidence. She methodically and strategically investigated. She knew each and every one of their habits, schedules, who they associated with, their hometowns, their likes, dislikes, childhoods. She took them all on like the warrior she was. And now another quick word from today's sponsors. You're back with Avery After Dark. In the midst of her investigation, Miriam also started an organization for families who were victims to cartel kidnappings. This organization was named The Vanished Collective, offering the kind of support and guidance that she wasn't given when Karen was kidnapped and killed. And not just support, the group of hundreds would work together to help locate their missing loved ones. Really powerful stuff. And as the years progressed, Miriam's tenacious strength only got more fierce. When it got more challenging to track down her daughter's kidnappers, she didn't roll over and call it quits. She stayed on the case, day after day, never taking no for an answer. Doors closed, repeatedly in her face. And many authorities grew frustrated with Miriam. Well, yeah, she was forcing them to do their jobs. She was handing them their perps on a silver platter, investigating, tracking, and locating them all on her own. Some authorities described her as blunt and foul-mouthed, but I'm guessing it was quite a hit to the ego to see Miriam, one woman, doing and completing the job of an entire male-dominated task force. Miriam was doing something that they weren't. She was disrupting the order of things in Mexico. Authorities were also disregarding her requests for increased police protection from the cartel, because at this point, it was known that she was on the hunt for these kidnappers and was sending them straight to prison. So she had a target on her back and feared these criminals would come after her for retaliation. Officials stated they did send some patrol cars to drive past Miriam's house, but it didn't seem to do much in the way of protection. She was on her own, essentially. One of her targets was now working as a florist, working along the border of the U.S. selling flowers on the side of the road, and Miriam got a tip of where he was located. She had been searching for him for a while. Miriam drove to his location, and when she walked up, approached him, he instantly recognized the 56-year-old woman and ran. The imagery of this notorious cartel criminal coming from one of the most savage gangs in the world, running away from Miriam like a scared child, yeah. 
everyone knew who Miriam was and knew that she was coming for him. So Miriam begins chasing him down. She grabs him by the shirt and wrestles him to the rails. She jammed her handgun into his back and held him at gunpoint for an hour as they waited for police to arrive. She told him, quote, if you move, I'll shoot you, end quote. The angel of justice strikes again. Miriam, her strength and determination, wow. Police arrived and the florist was arrested. While chasing down her final target, a young woman, Miriam actually broke her foot in pursuit of her. She had a cast and was using crutches. Broken foot didn't stop her, though. This woman was arrested after Miriam's pursuit. But tragedy would strike again for the Rodriguez family. In March 2017, nearly two dozen prisoners escaped from a nearby prison, a prison where Miriam's efforts had put many of her daughter's killers. A short time later, on Mother's Day, May 10, 2017, weeks after apprehending that final target, Miriam Rodriguez was shot in front of her home and killed. She had just gotten home, gotten out of her car, still in her cast using crutches, when a white truck filled with prison escapees pulled up behind her and unloaded 13 rounds. She was found outside, face down in the street. When found, her hand was tucked inside of her purse near her pistol. It is especially heartbreaking that this attack was on Mother's Day. Miriam's murder sent shockwaves through the community. Heartbreak, rage, uproar. Officials vowed to find and apprehend her killers. In the end, though, only two of those killers were arrested and the rest remain at large. But in her three-year pursuit, Miriam captured nearly every living member of the crew that abducted and murdered Karen, and in total was instrumental in taking down 10 people. Miriam was buried next to Karen, and the city placed a bronze plaque honoring her in Central Plaza. For many in San Fernando, her story reflects what's so wrong systematically in Mexico. A grieving mother had to investigate the disappearance of her daughter on her own and was ultimately murdered because of it. Louis, Miriam's son, took over the organization Miriam started in the wake of her death. But sadly, that organization later dissolved. Lewis has stated that he thinks his mom pushed too hard in her pursuit of justice and that he will not go down that same path. When I reflect on him saying this, I mostly just think this is someone who lost his sister in such a tragic way and now his mother. That is such a profound loss and I pray for him. But for most, Miriam's strength inspired many. She sent ripples through the community. She changed things. She took action. She disrupted the system, all the while maintaining her morals, standing up to those who have no regard for human life. When you think of the state of Mexico, Miriam could have resorted to violence, had an eye-for-an-eye type of mentality, got complete revenge against these men and women who took her daughter from her and killed them on sight. But she didn't. She only wanted justice and dedicated her life to it. Every moment was spent in pursuit of it. She was an unstoppable force, and Mexico was a better place when she was alive. And during her pursuit, she still took time to help others when she could. And take a moment and think about how many innocent lives were spared through Miriam's efforts. The impact she truly had and left on the community and world is monumental. Many compare Miriam's story to the Taken films with one main difference. Miriam did it. She lived this. 
this wasn't just a Hollywood script. This was her life. While alive, Miriam said, quote, I don't care if they kill me. I died the day they killed my daughter. I want to end this. I'm going to take out the people who hurt my daughter, and they can do whatever they want to me. End quote. Cartel violence is still rampant in Mexico to this day. Kidnappings and murders reported around the clock. But Miriam Rodriguez, her fearlessness, her activism, left a mark. She goes down as one of the most inspiring, heroic people in history. And in my book, what a mother should be. A brave, protective, loving figure that will stop at nothing for her children. I think we can all agree, the world was a far better place with Miriam in it. This story really touched me. You hear these kinds of stories, cases where parents take justice into their own hands and will take down their children's killers. So if you want to hear more of these kinds of stories on the podcast, please let me know. I will load up on Kleenexes so I can get through them. But these stories are so important and deserve to be told. It is now time for Ask Aves, the segment where we discuss the questions, comments, and topics you all have sent in. We've got some great submissions today, and you can send those in to the email and the show notes, or you can leave them in the Apple reviews. I read it all. First up is from Alex P. Alex writes, Hi, Avery. Big fan of your TikTok and podcast. I was wondering if you've come across any stories of the hat man or had any personal experiences with him. My family and I saw him when I was a teen, and it was a pretty memorable experience. When I was about 14, I had a room in the basement of our house. The basement was finished, so I had a bedroom and living room area and had a habit of sleeping in darkness as the only light in my bedroom was very bright. One night when I was trying to sleep, I had the feeling that I was being watched and dismissed it. But the feeling wouldn't go away, and I eventually turned over expecting to see nothing so I could go back to sleep. But in the corner of my bedroom beside the door was a tall, dark shadow of a man with a long overcoat and fedora. I couldn't see his features, but I knew he was staring at me. I froze and stared back, eventually mustering up the courage to throw a pillow at him. As soon as I did, the shadow got lighter and faded away. The feeling of being watched was gone. I saw him nearly every night and had the feeling of being watched, but he never moved from the corner just stared at me. Eventually, I got so uncomfortable, I decided to sleep upstairs in the living room beside my sister's bedroom. I stopped seeing him, but my sister said she started seeing the shadow in her room after feeling like she was being watched. We both spoke to our parents about it, and eventually, they started seeing him standing against the far wall in the kitchen beside their bedroom. My mom decided to talk to my grandmother, who had taught herself to read tarot cards at a young age and was generally more spiritual and experienced with things like this. She came by the house and felt something strange, so she did a full cleansing, and none of us ever saw the hat man again. The whole ordeal lasted about three or four months, but it's something I'll never forget. I got chills when I saw the tall man in the hat and overcoat in the haunting of Hill House. I'd love to hear any other stories of the hat man you come across. Apparently, he's a common specter. Thanks for all you do, Alex P. Thank you so much for writing in, Alex. I have most definitely heard of the hat man. Really creepy stuff. For those of you who don't know, I'll give you a little rundown. The hat man is a really eerie, commonly reported entity in which witnesses report seeing a shadowy, human-like figure dressed in an old top hat on some occasions. 
and on others a fedora-type hat and sometimes a trench coat. Most reports reflect Alex's story, a feeling of someone watching you as you sleep at night, and when you look up, the hat man is standing in the corner of the room, terrifyingly watching you. He will sometimes just walk away slowly or disappear. Unlike a ghost who might have visible facial features, the hat man is a shadow in the dark. You can't see his face, there's no details. Many times, witnesses report that they feel this utter terror upon seeing the hat man. In some cases, I've heard him described as a demonic entity. Many also believe that this entity feeds on terror and fear. Overall, paranormal investigators don't quite know what or who the hat man is, but it's safe to say he isn't a comforting presence. I personally have never seen him, thank lord, because he is one that really gives me the creeps. But Alex, your account is chilling. I have no idea how you mustered up the strength to continue sleeping in that room. You are a braver individual than I. But I've definitely heard stories regarding the hat man. One that comes to mind is I remember I did a story on a similar account as Alex's, actually very similar. A young guy claimed that he saw the hat man quite frequently while living in an old farmhouse as a young man. He claimed to have seen the hat man in his room, standing in the corner as he slept. On some occasions, he would wake up to the hat man standing over him as he slept. His room was on the top floor near the attic. Actually, the attic door was on the other side of his room. And he was startled as he would lock the attic door at night, but wake up in the morning to find it ajar. I believe his encounters ended when the family moved from the home, but yeah, he is commonly seen. And people have also said that they see him when experiencing sleep paralysis, which is... <laughs> but Alex, it sounds like your family was on the right track with the cleansing. Very smart idea. And I thank you for sharing your story. I'm glad you haven't seen him since, but I believe you never forgot it. There's something so chilling about an entity watching you sleep and also simultaneously feeding on your fear. If you have had an encounter with the infamous hat man, please write in and let me know. Like I said, investigators don't really know what this entity is, which makes it so much scarier and much more mysterious. Next up is a very fun would you rather question from Brittany. This will be great for you all to contemplate yourselves. She writes, Hey Avery, it's great to see another paranormal lover out here making waves. I have a question for you. Would you rather watch a scary movie with a horror film buff or with a scaredy cat? Love your content. Thanks, Brittany. Well, Brittany, this is a fantastic question. Thank you for writing in. Look, it's great to watch a scary movie alongside someone who appreciates the genre, knows what's going on, you can discuss the characters. On the other hand, I will say... Watching a horror flick with someone who is squirming around, totally freaked out the whole time, is very entertaining. I've watched quite a few movies with friends, family who don't like scary movies, and watching them react to some of those scenes, the jump scares, is just comedy. Because they don't know what's coming, they can't see it coming. Watching them freak out is almost as entertaining as the movie sometimes, so my final answer would be... I'd rather watch a scary movie with a scaredy cat for that extra entertainment. Make sure to send in your questions, stories, anything else you want to discuss and ask Aves. And until next episode, this is Avery After Dark.